We're at the very end of Mark chapter 12 tonight, the very end of the chapter. We have three short episodes, uh, page 1009, Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 38, and we're actually going to go all the way into chapter 13, uh, verse 2. We're at Jesus' final public teaching in his entire ministry, okay? So he's had these debates in the temple. He makes some final comments here in the temple. From here on out, he has some private teaching to his disciples about what's to come. And then, of course, he's arrested, uh, you know, teaching at the Last Supper, uh, uh, time in the garden, he's arrested, all of those things. But in terms of his public intentional teaching, this is the end of it. He's in the temple on the way out. He's had four questions, or, we, or we've had four questions. Uh, uh, Mark structures it that way. Three questions posed to Jesus, and then one question that Jesus poses back to uh, uh, those present in the temple asking the scribes uh, how uh, uh, the Messiah can be both David's son and David's Lord. And Austin taught on that last week. Now, his teaching concludes with some contrast between glory and humility, earthly glory and true humility. Let's read this or listen as I read it. Uh, Chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And he came out of the temple. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is God's word. We have here three little scenes, three little episodes, a warning about the scribes, uh, teaching based on the widow's offering, and then a warning about the temple. First, the warning about the scribes. The last question that was posed to Jesus, you might recall, asked a genuine question. Uh, uh, this is in, in beginning in verse 28 of chapter uh, 12, I guess we're in, uh, 1228. Uh, uh, question. He likes the way Jesus has responded to the Pharisees and then the Sadducees. And so he says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And there's that dialogue about the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. The second greatest commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And remember, at the end of that story, the scribe agrees with Jesus, and, and there's agreement between them. And as the scribe leaves, Jesus says that he is not far from the kingdom of God. Okay, that sounds a bit like an endorsement of the scribes. And yet, Jesus in the 
section Austin taught on last week poses a question back to the scribes that they're unwilling or unable to answer. And so now Jesus leads from a, a commendation of a particular scribe to a warning about the scribes. Beware. Clearly, it's not a condemnation of all scribes, since he commended the scribe earlier in chapter 12 as being near the kingdom of of God. But it's saying, beware of the, the scribes who are like this, the scribes who look like these different things. What do they look like? They wear long robes. Not just they wear long robes, but they like to walk around in long robes. This probably refers to the long white prayer shawls with tassels that distinguished rabbis and, and Bible scholars in Jesus' day. I saw a car the other day on I-5 that had a vanity license plate that said MBA, PhD. Okay, I'm all for education, but if you've got to put it on your license plate to tell people about it, that seems a little bit ridiculous, right? But, uh, uh, and I'm reminded, they like to walk around in these long robes. It reminds me... Um, when I was at Durham, uh, 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 I and another theology student were um, having a coffee with a, a, a Christian engineering student. And uh, theology students getting their PhDs, they don't look ahead to like high income necessarily. But this engineering student was studying a piece in wind turbines that breaks down, and he'd already figured out why it breaks down. And I think he'd already sold his research before he graduated and you know, had huge job offers for lots of money. And so we were talking, and the robes you wear at graduation are like $1,000. And so we were both saying, we're just going to rent our robes, the two theology students. But the engineering student said, oh, I'm going to buy mine. And, and we're like, well, what are you going to do with it? You're not going into academics. And he said, oh, I'll just vacuum the house in it or whatever I want to do. It's just, show that I have my PhD and wear this robe. And it sounds a bit like that here with the scribes, doesn't it? They like to be seen in the robe. They want people to know about their qualifications. They like to be greeted in the marketplace. According to rabbinic tradition, you were supposed to stand up when a scribe came, unless you were busy doing manual work, uh, to show them honor. It's not wrong to honor ministers or Bible scholars, but when it becomes the motive that people are seeking after that honor, it gets ugly really quick. They like the best or first seats. These are probably these benches in the synagogue that were in the front and actually faced the congregation. I think, I think someone's told me they grew up in a church where the elders all sat at the front. Um, I don't remember who that was, but I mean, that's kind of the picture here is they like to be set up front and have the whole congregation see them out in front of everybody. They like to be honored at feasts. And then it gets even more uh, uh, sinister, perhaps. They devour widows' houses. Well, scribes generally were not necessarily rich and oftentimes lived off donations. And so I think the image here is what we see in modern day with various TV evangelists who prey on the vulnerable. They encourage people to send in donations so that they can be prayed for, those sorts of things. That seems to be the picture here is taking advantage of the vulnerable, of the poor, of widows, uh, uh, pressuring them into contributing to their ministry. And then they make these long, pretentious prayers. Recall what Jesus said when his disciples, uh, he taught his disciples how to pray. He said, don't heap up empty phrases upon empty phrases like the pagans do. Uh, that's in Matthew 6, right before he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. Uh, don't be windbags. Don't, don't uh, you know, a bunch of words don't convince God to answer your prayer. And yet these scribes are making these long, pretentious prayers. 
they will receive great condemnation. They will be severely punished. The warning here is not just to Jewish scribes, but to all of us. It's a warning against using religion for self-elevation, using religion for gain. The scribes are not rich, but they try to milk out of it as much as they can get. This is a subtle but very real temptation for Christians as well, to use our religion as a way to get ahead, to get honor. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress comments, whoever takes up religion for the world to gain worldly treasure will throw religion away for the world. Okay, For a period of time, it might be good for your career. Some of you are um, uh, old enough that you remember a time when it was good for your career, that you maybe got a promotion because you were known to be a Christian, and it, it looked good on your resume that you were a member of a church or served as an elder. Um, well, when the tides turn and that it's no longer a positive thing for your career, if that's the only reason that you identify as being religious, then you're going to chuck it away if it's really about advancing yourself. Okay, there's the warning about the scribe. Now Jesus sits down, and what an interesting scene this is. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Isn't that interesting to think about? Jesus, he's done all this teaching, and then he kind of goes and sits down, and it says he sits opposite the treasury, so it's not in the middle of it, but kind of off to the side, and just watches what happens. Uh, He's people watching. At this point, it doesn't say necessarily the disciples were even watching with him, and and it says in verse uh, 43, he called his disciples to them to teach them. But he's just sitting and observing. Maybe after clean, uh, 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 driving the money changers out of the temple, he wants to see what's changed or something like that. He's observing what's going on. Well, the treasury in the temple is where uh, uh, gifts were given to the temple, and it was big business in that day. Uh, there were 13 shofar chests called because they were shaped like a shofar horn, uh, a bit like a traffic cone, I suppose, that it's narrow at the top and wider at the bottom so you could put your donations in, uh, but you couldn't steal them out, right? Because it would fall down in, be closed off. Well, as he watches, there's many rich people putting in large sums. Apparently, scribes or priests oftentimes would sort of uh, go over what's being donated to make sure it's appropriate for the uh, purpose being given, that it's the right amount for the sacrifice being given or whatever, uh, counting it up. And he watches these rich people giving large sums, but then he sees a poor widow who came and put in two small coins, two small copper coins. The small, these are the smallest coins that were in circulation uh, in Jesus' day. They added up to a 32nd of the two coins, a 32nd uh, of a day's wage, uh, so just a fraction of a day's wage. Uh, I suppose it's a bit like Anymore, if you see a penny on the ground, it's almost not worth bending over for, especially depending on how your back feels, that it's you know, just uh, almost valueless, and that, that's what she puts in. But we see that the divine exchange rate doesn't match up to human exchange rates. The rich put in large gifts, and yet Jesus says the widow who puts in these two small coins has actually given more. They contribute because they contribute from their abundance, from their extra. It's what they have left over after they've seen to their own needs. But the widow gives from her poverty out of faith. Now, Jesus is not saying here that we should destitute ourselves or give the last that we have. But there is at least three implications of what he's teaching here. 
First, he's teaching that the gifts of the poor are valuable to God. God doesn't use the same exchange rate we do. Maybe all that you're able to give is a few dollars to support the work of the church, but if that's all you're able to give, in God's sight, it's precious and valuable to him. Uh, he doesn't look at you know, the, the, the total amount. Conversely, it teaches us that extravagant gifts don't automatically merit favor with God. The rich are giving large gifts, large sums to the temple, but Jesus does not seem to be impressed. The third lesson seems to be that we shouldn't wait for excess to start giving to the work of the kingdom. It would be easy to do to say, okay, if I have some leftover at the end of the year, then I'll give to support the work of the church or missions or whatever it is. Uh, But the image here is she's giving uh, even when it's costly to her, faithfully, rather than waiting until she has excess. Well, Jesus is he's paying attention, he draws attention to her to draw a contrast between the scribes that he warns about on the one hand and this poor widow on the other. So you have the scribes and the rich being contrasted with the widow. And I wonder, what are some of the contrasts that you see? How are the scribes characterized versus the widow? They have long robes, yeah. Yeah, Their clothing marks them out. I'm sure her clothing marked her out as well as clean but old. Yeah, Chris? Yeah, with fanfare, making a big show of it. Yeah. Certainly they like to be recognized in the marketplace and when they're praying, you would think so when they give as well. Yeah. Self-important, you said? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the priest counted up the gifts out loud. So there was like a, if you're paying attention, you could hear it. I don't know. I don't know that it was being announced uh, necessarily. But. And you wonder even the mechanism of her giving here is this part of, is, her, her, is this her house being devoured, and yet she's giving from right motives, and so it's a good thing. Um, yeah. yeah, there is that connection there. So you have the scribes and the rich, they're showy and extravagant, ostentatious in their giving. You have the poor widow, humble, meek, looked down on. It's a bit like when Jesus sets the child in their midst as an example. He's setting this poor widow from the margins in the middle as it, or, or in front of them as an example. And yet the other contrast is her gift is accepted by God, but the scribes will have great punishment. Okay. Then, turning over the page to the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus exits the temple for the last time. Now this whole section I've been calling Jesus versus the temple. He comes into Jerusalem, he comes into the temple, and remember the first thing he does when he enters Jerusalem and enters the temple? He looks around, and then he goes out of the city to Bethany for the night. He just comes in and looks around to see what's happening. Now, then he enters in the temple, he's teaching, uh, or no, sorry, he enters the temple, he cleans it out, he's challenged by the temple leadership, whose authority are you doing these things on? 
Then they decide because of the crowds, they've got to trap him. So they ask questions to try and trap him in his words, get him to say something uh, that will uh, get him condemned. Uh, and so then they ask these different questions, and yet Jesus' teaching is shown to be authoritative. Jesus asks a question they can't answer. He warns about the scribes. Then again, he sits down. His last moment in the temple is looking around again, watching the people. And then he teaches the disciples one more time, and now he's on his way out from the temple for the last time. It ends this section, Jesus versus the temple. And what note does it end on? One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. What wonderful stones and wonderful buildings indeed. Herod was obsessed with grandeur and lasting achievement. So archaeologists in Jerusalem have found some stones uh, uh, from this time, and one stone was 42 feet by 11 feet by 14 feet and weighs about a million pounds, okay? These are massive stones. The retaining wall, uh, there's a, uh, Herod built up a big platform around the temple that was 35 acres uh, uh, area, 12 football fields, this massive area, and in the southeast corner, the retaining wall was 15 stories high, built out of these huge stones. So this is an impressive building project. The stones are impressive. The temple itself had columns holding up the the ceiling, and these columns, Josephus says, three men had to hold hands to reach around it. Okay, these are big Columns. The front was 50 meters high, 150 feet high, and then the back was lower, uh, 30 meters, 90 feet high. And remember, it's covered with gold and silver decorations, crimson and purple uh, banners hanging down off of it. Uh, This would have been an impressive, almost overwhelming sight to behold. As far as we can tell, it was the largest temple in its day. Uh, And it wasn't even finished at the time that Jesus is here. Herod was still working on it trying to build up this temple. Okay, what wonderful stones. Jesus leaves the temple for the last time. What does he say? Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The question Jesus poses, are these these building stones or uh, building blocks or are these stumbling blocks? Are you getting caught up on the glory of it and missing the importance? seems to me this is a real challenge for us as well. Uh, Jack, did you? Uh, I think so, and yet it's the, uh, uh, that wall is like a retaining wall farther down the hill, so it's not part of the, not part of the temple. Uh, uh, yeah, he says these great buildings. He doesn't say the retaining wall. Yeah, yeah good, good question. Uh, uh, Okay, so we have the contrast between the showy, extravagant, ostentatious scribes, the meek widow's gift, and now we also have this contrast. We have this extravagant building, and yet Jesus says it won't last. And it's a temptation for us Christians as well, uh, thinking literally about church buildings. Uh, when Kelsey and I travel, one of the things we love to do is go look at old churches. And of course, uh, a lot of areas of the world are a lot older than us, so you can go into really old buildings um, uh, go, uh, Durham, where I was, went to school, the cathedral, they started building it in the 12th century. It's you know, 800 years old. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, cathedral building. Uh, and yet, when we were in Scotland this summer, we didn't go to church in a beautiful old building. We went in a sort of ratty fellowship hall that was a bit like our carpet, except it was red. Uh, not that impressive. But what did they have? They had vibrant, 
faithful preaching of the word. They celebrated the sacraments. Uh, They didn't discipline anyone while we were there, but it was clear they held the orthodox standards of living, and there was a vibrant community. Okay, it's easy to get caught up in the splendor, the glory, the external trappings, and miss what's really important. Uh, Of course, you know, we have this crack in the wall back here where our heater vents are, and you might get worried about it. Well, that's not really what's important. Of course, having cracks in your wall isn't proof that there's spiritual vitality. You can have both spiritual death and a crumbling building. But uh, uh, if you've got to take one or the other, take the crumbling building and spiritual life rather than the opposite. Uh, when I uh, uh, came to the chapel, there was a man who came to church here sometimes, and he said, well, I love Pastor Bert's preaching. It's great. But I go to this other large church in town, and I said, well, why, you know, why do you do both? He said, well, they've just got such a great band. I love the music there, but the preaching's terrible. And, and it, again, it's that same sort of thing that you, uh, we, we look after glory. We like production value and nice lights and good bands and all those sorts of things. But that's really not what Jesus is all about. Uh, and, it's not, and so he warns the, his disciples, don't get caught up on the splendor of all this. And it's a warning to us as well. What's interesting is uh, two things. One is the uh, temple leadership in various ways has been asking questions, trying to get Jesus to say something that they can trap him. And what uh, uh, they can't do it. And yet at Jesus' trial, one of the things that is brought up is that he said, do you see these great buildings? Uh, there will not be here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that's brought up that he said he's going to destroy the temple. Uh, obviously, they kind of twist it. But it's interesting that this thing that he says here is one of the things that sort of sticks, as it were, at his trial. Not any of the responses to the questions. And yet, Jesus' warning uh, should be heeded. Josephus says, uh, Josephus is uh, the end of the first century after Jerusalem is destroyed. He says, once the Romans went through the city Uh, It was so leveled that a visitor wouldn't even believe people used to live here. That's how thoroughgoing the destruction of the city was. So Jesus, uh, uh, his words get twisted and are used as an accusation. He's trying to destroy the temple. Well, that's not what he's saying here. He's warning them, don't get caught up on the temple because it's going to be destroyed. And sure enough, within a generation, within 40 years, it is destroyed. And so his warning should be heeded. Uh, But it also functions then as this final culmination, this whole section, this argument, this debate for the heart of Israel uh, in the temple, back and forth with the leadership. And here's his final word. I've tried to clean out the temple. Don't cling to the temple. It's going to be destroyed. I think that's all I have to say on these short passages here. Uh, Any other thoughts on these? Yeah, Chris. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Herod had been building this for decades, and it still wasn't completed. And he's saying, well, in three days, and they're trying to get their heads around it. Yeah. Uh, And associating himself with being the new temple, the new place where God's name is placed uh, to come to. Yeah. Yeah, Lulu. Mm. 
Yeah. 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 It's the same sort of principle where Jesus um, uh, uh, condemns those who would tithe uh, uh, even their mints and their herbs, and yet they, they, when their parents need help, the elderly need help, they say, well, this is devoted to God for, for the temple or whatever, and so I can't give it to you. Um, and I guess it's a bit like a tax write-off then or something like that. Uh, uh, yeah, I, it's along the same sort of, uh, uh, of lines of um, uh, not supporting uh, not practicing justice is at the end of the day what it is. Not providing for the needy in our midst um, uh, or, or giving to other things to the exclusion of, of the needy. Um, certainly you shouldn't, uh, a church shouldn't support a minister to the extent that it impoverishes the church itself, that, uh, uh, especially the widows in the church. So that would be uh, uh, an inappropriate thing to do. Um, so yeah, there's that, that uh, tension Retention's the wrong word. Is that, um, well, I guess I'll say tension because I can't think of the right word. <laughs> uh, boundary, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Well, let's turn then to our.